Welcome to the very first Change Leader podcast. Some of you might know that the Change Leader series was first an interview article series by the same name, but recently there have been requests for me to try the podcast format. So here goes. Before I welcome my first special guest, I would like to give my heartfelt words of empathy to those who have lost loved ones, businesses, or jobs from this pandemic. This is such a surreal and uncanny time. My father-in-law recently made the comment that it kind of feels like we're all living a movie. And honestly, it kind of does. But what's starkly different is that there are real lives being affected from this daily. If you're struggling right now, lean on your family, your friends, your spiritual group, and your community. Ultimately, we'll get through this together, and as a nation, we'll come out stronger on the other side. With that said, I'd like to welcome my very first change leader guest, Dr. Mary Kay Vona. Welcome, Dr. Vona, to the Change Leader Podcast. Thank you, Moshe. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here with you today. And I so appreciate and echo your comments that you said in your opening. It is, I do feel sometimes we're living in a zombie apocalypse, but we will oh, get through sure. this. Yeah. I, I feel like I know it's state by state and country by country has hit kind of their apex, but hopefully we've turned a corner and we have to trust science and those that are that are leading in science. But it was beautifully stated. And really, people, there are so many outlets and kind people out there that are helping those less fortunate. So we need to keep that spirit up. 100% agree. How are you and your loved ones faring through this pandemic so far? Thank you so much. Yeah, I have actually, I, I'm fine. I'm hunkered down here in Tampa, Florida. I have had a few friends, though, that have been hit, not in Florida, but I had two friends that had it very tough. Well, actually, one on a ventilator. She's fine now, though. She's in New York. And then I had a friend in Europe who self-quarantined for two weeks. And then I had a few other friends scattered around the country. No one has been on a ventilator except my friend in, in New York. So wow. I've had it impacted probably a total of 10 wow. colleagues, friends, uh, no family members. Wow. Anyway, the long answer to your very, very poignant question. So I'm fine. I feel great. I've been walking five miles a day in Tampa, teaching virtual dance classes <laughs> um, and trying to help my friends that are you know, less fortunate that are trying to save some of their small businesses here in Florida. There are many avenues to help them. So, but uh, yeah, knock on wood, it'll be an interesting transition, especially over the next couple of months. Wow. Yeah. Stay, stay safe and stay healthy. And so I'm, I'm going to kind of get into the, the meat and potatoes here. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background and, and what you're doing now? Sure. Of course. So my journey really kind of started in northwestern Pennsylvania. I grew up in Erie, which is a couple hours northwest of Pittsburgh in between, it's called the tri-state area, between Buffalo and Cleveland. My career, kind of work, big girl work career started in the early 1980s. And I'd have to say that a hockey game and a blind date changed my life and trajectory wow. forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the year I was graduating from undergrad, and I had a blind date with a really nice gentleman, and he was excited about taking me to kind of a semi-professional hockey game. And in that area, everyone kind of played hockey, right? So went to the game. I was at the center ice line, and I felt like as a spectator, there wasn't the glass wasn't too high. 
And bottom line is I was right. And I was hit in the ear, the left ear with a slap shot. Oh my gosh. And yeah. And I had had a job after graduation. It was a nice, it was an okay job, but it wasn't like my lifetime dream. I was a kind of an internal HR specialist. And actually what happened with the injury is it, not to be gross, but it severed my ear pretty badly. Hmm. And I required about 185 stitches. An amazing doctor was flown in from Philadelphia from Temple to kind of reattach it and lost my hearing for a little while and a concussion. And the reason I'm telling you the story is because Northwest Pennsylvania winters are so pretty cold, (laughs) if anyone (laughs) is from that area, it really bothered my ear and it was hard to heal. And so the doctor suggested, you know what, Mary Kay, you really need to go to a warmer climate. And if you really wanted to heal. And although I, you know, hated to leave my family, it was the time to do that. And I had an opportunity to move to Florida. I had some friends in central Florida. So I gave it a month with some friends, moved down, found a nice job, and my ear began to heal. And that Hmm. started the whole trajectory in the sunshine sunshine state. So I ended up in in Florida. I worked in healthcare for a while and in manufacturing, both in as HR leader, as an HR leader there. Because that was my undergrad was in org psychology business and business. Then what ended up happening in the late 80s, I had a wonderful opportunity to join Price Waterhouse as an HR executive there. And that started my career in big eight and big four, which, you know, 30 years later, I recently retired from from EY in December of, of last year. And I transitioned in the mid 90s after a few years at PW in HR to external consulting, hmm. which I really felt the, where the action was. PW back then in the mid-90s, I don't know, you probably don't remember, but Y2K was huge, was one of the first kind of cataclysmic business events that was occurring. And that I transitioned, it was I saw an opportunity, I kind of wanted to retool myself, and PW Gate afforded me that opportunity and kind of retrained me in SAP, because SAP hmm. was, was, was huge then, still is, right? It's the ERP um, technology. Sure. I transitioned into project management and became kind of a change leader in our practice, Hmm. focusing on learning and development, organizational change, operating model design, made partner with PwC, had some great clients, lived through the Coopers and Libran merger, and then Enron happened in early 2000, 2002, and we were sold, the 35,000 of us that were partners and consultants in the PwC consulting practice back then and transitioned into IBM. So I became an executive at IBM before joining EY in about 10 years ago. So yeah, I've, I've had a great ride, a great career in yeah, consulting. Like I've it. loved every single minute of it. I've been on over 40 transformation projects, wow. primarily as a organizational change leader. And then after retirement, I picked up a class at Vanderbilt through contacts and, that are uh, professors at Bandy and um, been changing the uh, been teaching the consultation class skills course and then in the graduate program and then a couple online courses in the doctoral program and just recently accepted a board chair position for a nonprofit school in uh, Kigali, Rwanda with with expansion um, in Hong Kong and Asia named Davis Aquila College, oh, which wow. as you know, you worked on a, a project for them right yeah. last last year. And just exploring other options, I have an opportunity perhaps to actually teach change management around the country and hope to do that, you know, post-pandemic. So anyway, so life is good. I've, like I said, I've had a terrific ride and have loved every minute of being a mentor and coach and helping folks come up through the, the ranks in big four consulting. 
so that's about it. That's a little bit about you know you know my history and another long answer to a great question. But it's t- but everywhere along the line, along the way, I've probably transformed my career and what I've done. I think about four times. You know, different different moves, different pivots. Hmm. Um, and right. I think the best one was transitioning from an internal functional role, which I loved, but taking the risk to go into external client consulting because it's just afforded me some amazing opportunities to work with some fantastic companies in different industries. Wow. So that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's quite quite an extensive you know career and and you know you're you're quote unquote retired which is yeah what your retirement looks like is busier than than most people's normal work week but you know as as you know a Vanderbilt adjunct professor you know board chair of the Davis Aquila College and and also your your Zumba instructor one one thing that. I kind of notice is this common thread that you're you're currently involved in learning. And and I think one mm-hmm. could really make the argument that, that learning in and of itself is the process of change. What what draws you to, to being, you know, that, that conduit of change? Um great question. So and I won't give you kind of like the theoretical response because I think we're gonna probably talk about theory in a, you know later on in the in the discussion. But have always been, and so many people love to be lifelong learners, right? I don't mean that to be a cliche. I've used this time being hunkered down at home to, you know, really to take as many classes as I can, right, mm. as a learner. I, I like the master class series, by the way. I love Doris Kurt Goodwin, so I've been taking some of her history classes. But oh, I think if, if I go back to the genesis of my love and passion for change and embracing change, because I don't like to say manage change, because I, I think that's kind of pedantic. But hmm. I, it's probably what I witnessed as a child growing up with my parents. I was very lucky to have, you know, still do have them, wonderful parents. I'm the third generation. My great-grandfather came from... Italy as, you know, a nine or 10 year old little boy, you know, probably with less than $5 in his pocket and, you know, you know, grew a family and, and was a, was a wonderful grandfather. And, and, and I saw my, my parents, my dad and my mother worked very hard and my dad, in terms of changing himself, he went to school at night, got his master's degree in engineering. My mom stayed home. And then when we were raised, she went back to work. And she changed, right, herself and her career. She became employee of the year at an insurance company, you know, five years into going back to work, which was wonderful. So I guess I I had role models at the end of the day. Mm. I had role models that embraced life changes. And I was fortunate to have a couple of really wonderful grandparents that I learned from as well. And everyone has their story, right? People, you know, especially immigrants, right? Coming over and, and, and making a life for themselves. And I had some good teachers. I had some wonderful mentors. I went to a, my undergrad was a Catholic, private Catholic college. So I had the amazing experience of actually, you know, learning from some of the nuns, you know, that actually I had one nun who was my number one mentor and fan who actually was a concert pianist. And then she went back on her doctorate and actually became a business consultant. So my passion for consulting was really seeing Sister Lavin, Sister Jean Lavin work very diligently, especially in nonprofits for the underprivileged. And she did a lot of pro bono consulting. So I just, you know, I just, I witnessed it. I loved it. And I saw the impact that you can make, you know, kind of one person at a time. And then when you overlay that with like the theory of change management mm-hmm. and those that came before us that actually, you know, there's whole psychology of change. Sure. Mirror that you, you, you kind of have a product, right. Of, 
you know, changing, changing lives. And I think that's what change management is all about. Hmm. That's that's really really interesting, especially that that you know the sister <laughs> that she was well, one of your. She was uh, really cool. She didn't yeah. wear a habit. She was one of the first huh. that didn't wear a habit. Huh. Um, and then I had other lay teachers as well, but she was instrumental because she was so brilliant. Wow. And, uh, and you know, to get back also to my parents is they really instilled a love and passion for history. Mm. I still remember dinner table conversations, you know, did you do your homework and what did you learn today about, you know, Winston Churchill or World War II or the Vietnam War? You know, so my parents were really kind of Renaissance parents when it comes to, you know, kind of grilling their their kids. And then I had some good teachers. I mean, you have some bad ones too, but I was pretty fortunate to to be probably mature for my age to to want to emulate the positive behaviors. And we were pretty athletic. We were a fairly athletic family too. So, you know, athletics may have probably paid played a, a role in that too, you know, spirited com, com, competition. So, but yeah, so yeah, so have a passion for change, want to continue doing it, want to continue in a different way probably, right? Because sure. know, before career is, is over, now it's time to do something different. So you you, you mentioned the, the theory of, uh, of change. Uh, I, I wonder what, what's your opinion on, on the importance of, of having a framework or, or a model when implementing change? Well, I think it's critical, right? So, you know, there's an entire psychology, you know, around change management. I mean, you could go back to Skinner's test and theories on, on rats, not to be gross, right? But um, <laughs> and then you can look at, you know, after World War II, there was the whole Tavistock Institute, which is still around, right? Which you know, they played an integral role in looking at, you know, British Army psychiatry, right? I mean, that's where a lot of this has root in, right? Hmm. And then there's that's focus in field of study, on cognitive dissonance, you had Chris Arturitz on double alert learning, Chester Barnard on function of the executive, or you could go on and on. And then Meister's, more recently, Meister's work on trust and the importance of that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, having some formal framework for organizational change management, I'm not talking change control, that's more of a PM project management type component. Sure. Critical to have a framework. And I've been very attracted to, as you know, the you know, Prozi methodology for organizational change management. I think the, you know, the PCT model, ADCAR, looking at individual change and how that, you know, the collective in, you know, impacts organizational change, I think, is integral. And, and there's, there's numerous different theories. I just happen to be definitely attracted and grounded in that. I know you're certified in it. I am as mm-hmm. well. So, you know, just at the end of the day, the clients have to, your clients, your external clients, and internal need to be grounded in some type of framework. And you have to, as you know, the evidence shows, right, because I'm yes. all about evidence-based yeah. and scientific-based. There, there was probably about 10 or 15 years where, and a lot of it, remember we mentioned about the Y2K, so many organizations invested millions and millions of dollars in transformation, and they looked at it, and it was like a Peggy Lee song, is that all there is? What, what's going on? Where's my return? Hmm. And, and one thing I think that Prozai's done an amazing job of is their research, you know, over 30 years that, you know, at the end of the day, it's like 50, you know, 70% of those organizations that didn't, re- didn't achieve the changes they wanted, it was because they didn't have management support, the leaders derailed it. So I think grounding in a framework where your leaders are leading, right, you increase the, you know, level of adoption. So. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty pretty important for our listeners to to understand that 
you know, it's it's important to have have some type of framework. It doesn't necessarily have to be pro sci, but but something that is evidence based and that really, like you said, the clients are comfortable with, but that really manages that that change to get that buy in. I think that's that's a really important point. Yeah, I mean, it really is, Moshe. I mean, like in this in my you know thirty year career looking at projects and programs, those with those that were differentiated in terms of being successful, they had strong, visible leadership. They had visible sponsorship. And they had a well-integrated, executed, and executed change strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think you're seeing more and more, and, and you know, Agile is, is really pretty critical. I grew up in the waterfall era, but I've been implementing Agile in our classes. If you remember last year, I mean, and even more so this year, the students took a very iterative, agile approach to serving the clients that they had in their class. Sure. Yeah. And it was it was interesting to read the reflection papers. If you remember this kind of the culmination of the class, I'd, I'd have to say probably over 50% of the students said, this agile stuff is really great. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I must have done something right, right in, in, in the class. But I think it's really important whether you hang it on the PCT model in ACAR or ProSci or any other type of framework that you're applying to make sure that you do have a strategy that is executable and that you can reinforce and that's evidence-based. So That's great. So kind of fast forwarding to, you know, our, our current, our current situation, our current state, collectively we are in really an unprecedented time in history, a time Mm -hmm. when not only the nation, but the world is experiencing change on a large scale. There's people out of work, there's people working remote while taking care of kids and the dogs are barking in the background. And, (laughs) you know, everybody's just collectively on guard when they go out from from this invisible enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what do you think about you know, what, what's your advice? How can we navigate through this uncertainty on both a professional and a, and a personal level? How can we navigate this successfully? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have all the answers. I mean, you could ask 10 different people and they'll tell you 10 different things, right? I do think that staying informed is very important. Embracing science and the experts is critical. I think that there have been two words that have been used quite a bit probably overused, but I don't know if anyone else has a different word, but it's, you know, unprecedented and unparalleled. I mean, everyone, mm-hmm. every, every news channel starts that way, sure. that, right? Yeah. And, and they're both germane to what I think we're living through. And I tend to go back to, you know, kind of my roots and that I mentioned in terms of the influence of my family and professors and people that I've known and loved have taught me. And, and I think we've, Somewhat get, have gotten away from it, which is unfortunate, and I don't know the reason for it, but I like to intend to learn from history and apply modern technology and thinking to it to kind of create our own new kind of paradigms of ground living, right? I, like I said, I believe in science, and I believe in technology and, and also the human spirit, right? Hmm. So I like to call it kind of a spirited adaptability, which is what I think has happened right? Um, We have had online learning. We have had remote learning for a long time, right? Now, the technology may have been refined, and now it doesn't look like a bad film, right? (laughs) Right? Whether you're using Zoom or Cisco or whatever you're using. The the pictures are pretty good, right? I mean, I I just finished, before this call, I just finished teaching a, 
you know, a Zumba hip hop class, you know, on Zoom with my students, right? You know, that I, that I teach on the weekends. So the technology has changed. How we navigate, I really think it's applying those lessons learned that we've learned from history, applying technology and, you know, storytelling, hmm. right? I think that that calms people down, right? I mean, I think that if you look at those crisis leaders that have succeeded, what are the characteristics that they embody? They inspire, they motivate, they manage in a calm fashion, they communicate, they over-communicate, right, when need be. But first and foremost, and you can get into a philosophical conversation about the role of a federal government versus a state government, wherever you live, right? But at the end of, but the bottom line is to protect your people and to keep them safe is paramount. Now, we could get into other conversations about, you know, the balance of civil liberties, right, i.e. those that are protesting and want to get back early versus sure. their, their right, your right to be safe, right? So that's something that I think that individuals have to wrestle with, right, mm-hmm. and then the collective has to wrestle with. I, I, think, I think we have to just be smart about this, and we have to listen to those leaders that we know are grounding their recommendations in science, in the experts that are making those recommendations. We've never seen anything like this before. I don't know, I don't know many people that are around in 1917 during the flu, right? <laughs> but those smart scientists are learning from that too, even though they didn't have the technology back then. But I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to trust the experts and I'm going to behave smart, right? And I, I think that the organizations, you know, like EY, like, I mean, all the, all the top organizations that are coming out and saying, no, this isn't safe for our people, this is what we're going to employ. No, we're going to keep it closed until we're told that it's okay. Mm-hmm. To me, those are the, those those are amazing leaders. They're doing something that's definitely going to negatively impact their bottom line, but they're doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And I think that's how you navigate. And I think that I think that there's going to be some companies, unfortunately, that aren't going to survive. But then I think that are there are some that are going to flourish. And I think there's going to be some jobs that are going to be created as a result of this too. Hmm. Right. So I try to look at the positive and the optimistic around it. Sure. Right. Sure. And certainly you can argue that our, our fellow men and women have done amazing things in, in terms of kindness. Oh, yeah. right. And maybe that's been a lesson, a lesson learned. I'm not an apocalyptic person. I just think that that I've seen so many people that I didn't know had it in them. You know what I mean? In terms, <laughs> in terms, in terms of generosity, in terms of setting example and being good crisis crisis leaders. Yeah. So I don't think I answered the question about navigating. I I just explained like what I've observed in terms of of organizations that I've been impressed with, Mm -hmm. right? And what they've done. Like I told you, I'm getting on a Southwest airline on Tuesday and I I could have gone on any other airline, right? But I wanted to go nonstop. But I really was impressed with the CEO of Southwest and he's over communicating and he's saying, this is how we're disinfecting the planes and this is how we're going to keep social distance when we board. Because I mean, Southwest boarding process not exactly social distance, right? I <laughs> feel like historically. <laughs> but he explained what they're yeah. going to do. He over-communicated. So go back to change theory, right? Communicate, communicate, reinforce, reinforce. Be aware of what the change is all about. You have to have the desire to change. And you know, that's why I'm hopping on a plane with, you know, 20 masks and a lot of gloves. Yeah. No, safe, safe travels. And my disinfectant. And, and my disinfectant. Jeez. So. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I, yeah, but I, I, I've been very impressed with. E- I've been so impressed with. You know, the the firms have done so much to protect their people mm-hmm. and their clients. 
you know, my, my former clients have kept in touch and have shared what they're doing as well. So, you know, we'll get out of this. We'll get out of this. I think, but I think we have to be realistic in terms of expectations of when we do and, you know, market results and what that looks like. That's a whole different discussion on the economics around it. Sure. But I think, I think it's shown some true leadership as well, Moshe. Yeah. And, and I think, I think you really did hit the nail on the head as far as how, how to navigate this. And, and I think it comes down to, you know, follow, follow the facts mm-hmm. and, and in, ensure that, that you're, you're keeping, you know, informed about what, what really is, is going on. There's unfortunately a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. it more, more so than, than any time in human history, you know, you can, you can mm-hmm. get your, your news from, from Facebook, you know, and, and that's not, mm-hmm. not a, exactly a reputable, you know, journalism source. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, th- I think, I think you, you kind of hit the, the nail on the head here. Well, one thing you mentioned that I thought was interesting, you mentioned the, the human mm-hmm. spirit, you know, and mm-hmm. one of the good things that I've, I've noticed that has come about from this surge of, of working remote and interacting remote and, you know, in a professional setting, there there might be you know the a kid a kid might just just come in and, and just barge in. Oh, I know. You, it's you, 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 endearing, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you might you might see somebody walk across the screen in a bathrobe or something, but it's it, it just it just I feel like it's making us collectively understand the humanity of everybody. Mm-hmm. Can can you speak just? a little more about that, that human element of change, that human spirit and how, you know, important that is to address. And if you look at personality types, remember we did that also in class doing communication mm-hmm. styles. Everyone yeah. has their own communication style. Sure. We've all, and hopefully we, we learn to adapt. There's times that I've used a more analytical style versus a more enthusiastic style. But at the, at, I think what I have seen in the human spirit is this has increased and enhanced the need to be innovative, right? The need to, you know, we, I think sometimes you rest on your laurels, right? You know that innovation is out there, whether it's technological process, people, whatever it may be. But I think the human spirit has uh, really, in this situation, been pushed to the maximum. And I mean that in a very positive way. Hmm. So people that I never would have thought would have wanted to coordinate Friday night, Zoom cocktail hours are all over it. You know, their need for... <laughs> Their need for human interaction, right, mm-hmm. has been pretty, has been very significant and amplified to a different degree. So that's, that's been exciting. What I worry about is I worry about the people that don't have access to that technology or processor people. Mm. You know, so I mentioned earlier the college in Rwanda, Davis Aquila College. You know, we had to make some tough decisions as board chair and, and, and working with our, our board and our founder and C-suite had to make some challenging decisions. And this is all public in terms of expansion. So, and then the creativity around ensuring that our young women, and we have 400 that will be graduating, uh, will be finishing their, their certification by the, I think in the summer, you know, ensuring that they have the right technology access, that they have Wi-Fi access, they can, they can finish their classes remotely. Wow. So what that's, that's who I was concerned about, or maybe the, yeah. like even the homeless, right? How do you mm-hmm. get information, you know, to, to, from a socioeconomic perspective, how do you help people that are less fortunate than us that all have that Wi-Fi connection, that all have technology, that all have processes, that are working for organizations that are taking care of us? So that's been kind of like my concern 
you know, in terms of how do we how do we help those people that are less fortunate? And I, I've seen our communities like step up in so many situations. And because I traveled so much, many why I had clients in Los Angeles, I had clients in New York. I personally tried to stay in touch with like organizations in those cities that gave me so much. Like, what are they doing for their people? And just chose to either contribute, you know, financially there or whatever to ensure that those people that are less fortunate have that access. Hmm. So, but yeah, the, the human touch has been amazing. I think some people have been extremely creative in how they apply it. And I think there's going to be new jobs that are going to be created as a result of this. Wow. I, I was going to tell you a quick story, but go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no, Did please, please. Follow up? No, 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 go, go ahead. No. I, so in terms of remote learning, so I won't name the, name the name of the company, but this was probably about 18 or 19 years ago, I was working for an organization that a global company that really um, definitely relied on instructor-led learning. That was 100% on Mary Kay and, and it was an organization that had dispatchers and they were, they were primarily in the U.S., but they were also global as well. And I remember working with a very innovative client, and I'm like, you know, we're spending so much money on instructor-led training, and we have people out in the field, and they're dispatching, and they're, you know, it it was a kind of a quasi-transportation company. Hmm. And we're like, let's take the risk, and let's make an investment and show the C-suite how much we can save, and we can increase the level of engagement because people can do this, you know, at home in their office, whatever it may be. Sure. I guess this was 20 years ago. The technology wasn't super great, but it was okay. It was mm-hmm. good enough, right? And at the, at, at, I think the end result was we saved this organization like over a million dollars and increased the positive feedback that the user, and we did web-based training and some virtual classes, and we, we did both synchronous and asynchronous learning to the point where the CFO and CIO of that organization during a quarterly analyst call, this is when you knew you had arrived, huh. during a quarterly analyst call, I actually mentioned the learning intervention and how wow. much the organization not only saved, but increased the operational efficiency and the positive feedback from the employees on the learning experience. So, That's like so I cool. said, this has been around for a while, right? We have just been encouraged, forced, cajoled, right, as 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 professionals to actually encourage people to use the technology that we have. So, anyway, I thought it was an interesting story, and we were so excited as a consulting firm at the time to actually have the C-suite mention. They didn't mention the firm by name, but they just mentioned the intervention that, sure. that yeah. we had um, encouraged. And if we didn't have the leaders, at the top of this particular client encouraging that, it would have been derailed, right? But they encouraged it, they supported it, and they reinforced it. That's interesting how how everybody is, is being kind of forced into this remote environment now. And for companies who, you know, culturally may have been against it, they're finally starting to see the validity and, and starting to see that, oh, in fact, you can be very productive remote and there are a lot of you know a lot of benefits and a lot of cost savings so that's you you were obviously 20 years ahead of the game <laughs> on, on on this one I think we were ahead of, I, I yeah I'm just my point was I yes exactly the the technology and infrastructure was was on the rise yeah. I certainly think that we have refined it organizations sure. that are you know building learning technologies learning building micro learning interventions and the quality continues to improve Right. And I think it's incumbent upon us as the consumer and then also as the consultant 
to encourage the, the, the ongoing refinement and kind of push the edge. Like when someone says, oh, you can't teach a group cohort, you know, um, online. Well, yeah, you can. Right. right. There are engaging right. ways through breakout sessions, through polling, through demonstrating, you know, showing videos. There's a lot more technology than we had 20 years ago. But mm-hmm. my point was that we had a leader back then that encouraged the, you know, the risk taking, sure. right? Another, another characteristic of a good leader, taking the right kind of risks, especially a crisis, a crisis leader. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, Hey, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a remote learner and I, you know, I, I love teaching my students that way. And I think we'll probably will get back to some form of a blended solution, mm-hmm. right? I do feel for parents that, you know, are furloughed, they're at home, they're teaching their children. I mean, that's really tough. It's really tough. I have a couple friends that are teachers, and they've done quite well. But, yeah, you do have the dogs barking, the babies crying, and the doorbells ringing in the background. <laughs> but, you know, that's, you know, that's life, and it is human. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, we'll get, we'll, we'll get through this, and we'll be a lot smarter. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting dissertations written, don't you think, Moshe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For it's, sure. it's going to be very interesting. One of the things that you, you kind of – kept mentioning was was leadership uh-huh. the importance of of leaders uh, kind of ensuring that they are they are on the forefront mm-hmm. are, are there any any states that you think mm-hmm. you know manage this crisis mm-hmm. better than others from uh, a leadership perspective and and what mm-hmm. what makes those states kind of stand out as a as a model case study well and, and I prefaced it that this is my opinion, right? Sure. This is yeah. through, you know, my research, my affiliations, and actually, you know, what I've seen and, and how these individual governors in particular have, it's tough to be a governor, right? You're a state executive, right? And for those students of history, the whole, you know, history behind states' rights, right? I, I love to, I love John Adams. He was probably my favorite president of history. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't know if he'd be rolling in his grave or he'd be giving us good advice, but <laughs> yeah, but, but th- these are a few of the, the, the governors that I have been impressed and, I, and, and, you know, I don't know anything about the, their budgets pre pandemic. I'm just talking about point in time over the past three months in terms of their visibility and how I think they have governed their states. So, of course, you know, Andrew Como. I mean, if it wasn't for him, I'd like every day I'm watching. I'm, I, he, and, and you know what? A lot of his slides are powered by McKenzie, right? I don't mm. think Governor Como sits there and does all the, the, the slides himself. I mean, he has had, he retained a consulting firm to help him with the analysis, to help him with the modeling. And I think all of the governors have done that. But so Governor Como, Governor Newsom of California, Governor Larry uh, Hogan of Maryland, I think has been uh, instrumental in, in communicating and, and quite frankly out there. Governor Kate Brown of Oregon, I think she showed compassion early on by disseminating a lot of her state's assets to other states that needed it more so than Oregon at the time. Hmm. And then, of course, got Governor Gretchen Whitmer of, of Michigan. Now, I'm sure there's many other governors of both party affiliations that I'm missing, but those are the ones that I think have stood out and they have shared they have worked closely with their respective state CDCs and, and health departments. They have communicated the reality of what's going on in their state. And they've been, you know, they've made some very tough decisions. Some have been criticized. Most have been embraced. And I think that they have saved a lot of people as a result of their intervention. Hmm. So, like I said, I'm not, I'm not being overly political about it. I'm yeah. just saying this is, the, the, these are the ones that have stood out in my mind. 
both Democrat and, and Republican. And I think they've had certain characteristics as crisis leaders. You know, whether or not you think at the federal level we've done a good job, I think we've taken states' rights to a new level. <laughs> so mm. could we have all been better, better integrated? Oh, absolutely. But those are the people that stand out to me. And I think they've showed emotional intelligence. They've shared facts and details as they know them. And I think that that one quality that they've demonstrated that is just near and dear to my heart is, is empathy. Hmm. They've been extremely empathetic with loss of lives. They haven't. Well, I mean, we're at a six point was a six point two percent death rate of this. Uh, it's pretty high. You know, it's not the flu. The flu is, I think, was less than two percent, if memory serves me correctly. So this is this is bad, right? This is tough. And, and you know, twenty years from now. I'm sure history will look at this, you know, we'll, we'll have a lot, of, a lot more dissertations and research and study between now and then. But I think at the end of it, at the bottom line is empathy has been, has been critical. They've been non-judgmental. I think they've had a high tolerance for, for challenging behavior. <laughs> and uh, I, admire, I admire what they've accomplished. So. Yeah, I think there's there's been a lot of a lot of good examples of, of really, really fine, fine leaders taking it mm-hmm. from, you know, Kind of the the macro to, to more of the the micro level, depending on mm-hmm. the organization. Mm-hmm. What what advice do you have for for leaders trying to lead their teams through this mm-hmm. environment? Um. Well, you know, I'll, I'll go back to inspire, motivate, no details, and be kind. Mm. Um, I think that. Um, you know, you've heard a lot about defining purpose and explaining the why is extremely important. Mm. I think the best leaders are also good listeners and they develop thought provoking questions, right? I mean, these governors aren't medical doctors, right? I don't think any of them are medical doctors, but they have been able to best case scenario, articulate and listen and ask the right questions and if you notice those that seem to know the details more right about what's going on in their state whether it's number of hospital beds or whatever it may be or number of ventilator whatever ppe equipment they i mean they seem to know the details whether they're fed the details is one thing or whether they're involved in the details is another but there are some leaders that that don't like to get involved in the detail, right? They have handlers or whatever it may be. But sure. I have found, and actually I learned from one of my mentors at PricewaterhouseCoopers, she's amazing. She just recently retired. And she's like, Mary-Kate, to be a good leader, you have to know the details. So hmm. meaning how I like to lead, whether it's right or wrong, is I like to know birthdays. I like to know what's going on in people's lives. I like to know when they got married. I like to, you know what I mean? Like knowing their details because I feel I can ask questions and be perceived as a more empathetic leader because I know about, I know the person, hmm. care about the person, right? And I think that it's integral to the way you develop critical inquiry skills as you ask those right questions, right? So as leaders try to navigate their teams, being empathetic, being caring, I mean, you have to watch the bottom line. I get that. Bottom line is going to be a little messy over the, <laughs> over the next year, whether we, whether we embrace that or not. But doing things that continue to motivate and inspire people, I think, will be critical. Uh, that would be my advice to leaders. Yeah, that's that's fantastic advice. It sounds like the, the overarching kind of theme is – is that EQ and, and really, um, you know, 
for, for leaders who, who maybe need to brush up on, on the, the EQ are more analytical just overall, you know, it sounds like it's this is the time to, to really flex that EQ muscle. Good point. And, you know, this is a good time also to test things, too, right? Mm. You know, test some of those hypotheses. Test some of the things that you wanted to do, but maybe either didn't have the time or inclination or it wasn't the right time to test. Sure. Time to do that. Um, You know, I'll I'll reference some actually EYDDI research that they did with the conference board last year, I believe, is that, you know, um, organizations that with, you know, leaders that are transformative, meaning a lot of the characteristics that you and I have talked about, right, they outperform other organizations by over 50%. Hmm. And organizations without that leadership underperform, you know, by I think it was like a negative 28 or 30 percent. So those facts are there, you know, given that population that responded to that and a lot responded, if I remember correctly. So you overlay that with a with a pandemic. I, I think that I think maybe even some leaders that you wouldn't even have thought that had those skills, Moshe, might come to the surface. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's true. That's that's a uh, that's that's valid. I mean, and the kind of culture that the kind of culture that they embody, I think, is is very critical. We're kind of talking about folks who are fortunate enough to be leading an organization through this, to be leading people who have jobs. There are a lot of people, unfortunately, right now that are are out of work. As someone who has interviewed and hired countless people. What advice can you give job seekers once the economy is back open for business? And, and furthermore, do you have any advice to give students graduating into this job market? Well, you know, it's so coincidental that you've asked this. As I submitted my final grade at Vanderbilt, we recently facilitated, we meaning Peabody School in conjunction with Career Center, facilitated a mentoring series at Vanderbilt where we had three different executives representing different industries that did you know, coach those, coach the students. I think at the, you don't wait until the pandemic's over. Hopefully everyone is continues to network. And there are some great platforms. I mean, I think LinkedIn is probably a universal platform. Wouldn't you say, Moshe? I mean, that's where oh, yeah. I, I obtain a lot of my information, who's hiring, who's not, that type of thing. And it's a, and there's so many different features and functions now that LinkedIn has that no one should feel abandoned or alone, regardless of your academic background or your professional background, mm-hmm. right? I just received yesterday a request of a woman that worked for me 25 years ago at, at Price Waterhouse is uh, applying for an amazing senior level of position, and she was reaching out for a reference. So I think people still are hiring. They are probably slowing that down, as, sure. but this is a good time to kind of nest, if that's the right word. So, there, like, if you bifurcate this, let's look at folks that are seasoned and experienced that have lost their jobs, right? That's a, that would be a different avenue to take, right? Mm. And I would encourage those people. I do know that, um, and I'm not as familiar with, like, the stimulus package or what's been offered. Some of my friends have, are small business owners, and they've shared frustration, and then some have shared elation because they, you know, went through, whatever that may be. I would just encourage people that are seasoned that lost their, their jobs to make sure that they have pursued every avenue that the state and federal government has afforded them, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it be, you know, unemployment, whatever it may be, no one should starve. Absolutely. In this country, no one should starve. You can call me if you need help. Right? <laughs> like, like no one should starve. No one should be able to not feed their family. And I think that in some states the you know, their landlords have been, have been empathetic, but whatever it may be, just 
bottom line is pursue that. Don't be proud, right? Pursue what you need to for your family, right? That's one thing, including, you know, job networking and using the tools and technology that are out there in the networks that you have. Now, let's talk about students, right, that might have under five to seven years of, of experience or went right from undergrad to grad mm-hmm. school. One thing that we're telling students, I tell them if they can afford it and they have the means, now's not a bad time to stay in school, hmm. right? So it's not a bad time to get your master's degree if you don't have it. It's not a bad time to consider law school. I mean, I remember in 2008 during that crisis, mm-hmm. right, that economic crisis. Sure. You know, I think it generated a lot of a lot of lawyers, right? A lot of people went back <laughs> to law school or master's degree, right? If yeah. you can afford it. I'm not saying go out and get tons of loans. But if it's something that you want to do and it's something you've always wanted to do, now might be the time to do that. You know, assess your financial situation first, right? As it relates to the to jobs, right? I I would pursue maybe just think about the fact that this next job or first job that you get out of school might not be forever job. It might not be what you want to do long term, but to look at it as a look look forward. It could be an interim step to what you want to do. Sure. So, yeah, and we've talked about that with the, the students at, at Peabody and, others, and, and other universities. I've talked to a lot of, you know, my friends, do, you know, children that, that are graduating. And, and, some, and some are fortunate to get a, something or maybe, maybe their offer has been pushed out. Don't be depressed about that. You know, employers are trying to balance their workforce and their forecasting. So if you were supposed to start in October and they said, no, nope, you got a job, but you're going to start in January, maybe do something fun or volunteer or do something in the nonprofit world for a few months until that happens. So bottom line is network, assess your skills, understand your positioning, like where, what can you do short and long term, right? And if you can, you know, stay in school, do that as well, you know, consider doing that. But I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I think the students, the students that I've talked to, they're getting, you know, very positive feedback from the recruiters. Oh, that's great. They're using an opportunity to network any way they can. Yeah. Right. They're using LinkedIn and, you know, look at the alumni community. You, you, you've helped facilitate, you know, at, at Bandy Moshe. I mean, that's a great networking opportunity. And yeah. what I would say to those students like yourself, Moshe, that have been very successful over the past couple of years is remember where you were. Right. And always yeah. help those coming up. Yep. That should, that should be your mantra. Right. And if we all do that, that network of universe, that university network, that first, first job out of school network will come back 10 times. Totally agree that to, to utilize that, that network, you know, Vanderbilt has a very strong network. And, and so for, for Vanderbilt students out there, know that you, you, can, you can lean on that for, for advice and help and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think, I think those, those words were very wise, very wise. So yeah, well, and I also think that an opportunity to do some even non-paid internships, too. I know some of the universities have facilitated that. I know they're not doing a lot of global internships uh, any longer but there are some organizations that would welcome the opportunity to work with students as part of their, of their academic program. I know that mm-hmm. I may be tutoring a student that might be doing a small micro, like a micro learning. It's almost like an extended project, oh, right, okay. for an organization because that increases your visibility as well. Sure. And it could lead, it could lead to a job, I guess, is my point. So yeah. look for an avenues or connect people. Like I had someone reach out to me on LinkedIn. I didn't know this student said, hey, do you have any contacts in Austin, Texas? And I, I happen to have two of my one client and one colleague, and I reached out to them first and said, hey, you know, here's a student that 
actually, I think he just got his doctorate. I said, would you mind kind of networking with him? And they jumped at the opportunity. I've never, ever had anyone say, don't bother me, ever. <laughs> you know, no, I haven't, right? And and they, everyone is very willing to, it isn't even pre-pandemic, but especially now, right? Yeah. Everyone is very willing to support, provide guidance and, and help those out. Like I said, just remember that, you know, when when someone else needs assistance, you know, so. That's anyway, true. That's so true. yeah, so I think I think yeah, that's that that would be my I don't know if they're pearls of wisdom or not, but um, that would be my suggestion. So I want to switch gears a little mm-hmm. bit. We're kind mm-hmm. of nearing the end of this this really informative and fantastic interview, and want to want to get a, a little more more personal with all of the things you're involved in. How do you stay grounded? How do you stay in that Zen zone? Oh, I like that Zen zone. I am so glad you asked that question. It's one that I, along with uh, most of consul- most consultants, are frequently asked, and it may be just because of our lifestyle. And sometimes we wonder how do you how do you stay grounded? Mm-hmm. I've had you know, really good role models uh, along the way that stressed throughout the, my career that the importance of balance. And I always believe that finding your passion, whatever is germane to your life, is important. And I have found mine in actually a number of ways, and there's four key ones. The first one is actually through music, and you know that I love classic R&B. Mm-hmm. I've shared that with my classes before, right? It's uh, my favorite along with Latin and, and rock, and I enjoy music festivals, so I try to go to those, theme cruises. I teach dance fitness and enjoy that tremendously, and I also take lessons on the side. My parents were amazing dancers, and they also made sure I took piano lessons. So, in my kind of yeah, and in my post consultant life, although I'm not really retired, um, I hope to take piano lessons. I have one at home, and that's one that's on my bucket list to take again. I took for about 13 years when I was in in high school, and I really want to get back to it. The second one is sports and athletics. And with baseball being my absolute favorite, so this is you know the whole COVID thing and not having sports and watching watching baseball games from you know ten years ago is half <laughs> yeah. suffice at this point in time. Uh, I have season tickets to Yankee Spring Training living in Tampa, and I hmm. grew up a huge a huge Yankee fan. And Dad taught me statistics with baseball, which is oh, kind of cool. a cool way to teach your kid. Yeah, yeah wasn't that cool? A cool way to teach your kid math, right? I love the game so much that several years ago, I joined the Yankee Women's Fantasy Program in Tampa. And one weekend a year in January before spring training kicks off, several several female teams are coached by Yankee, a few of the Yankee greats and hmm. play several games over the weekend. It's a really amazing experience. I've gotten to be great friends with um, my, my teammates and their husbands and families. So I just look forward to it. Every year, I've gained such wonderful friends. So sports is a big thing. Uh, you know, I, I love football, I love basketball, but you know, I'd have to say that baseball is my passion. Third is the travel. Uh, love traveling, and you're probably saying, huh, a consultant, you like to travel. <laughs> COVID's also killing me here, too. Uh, and my goal, my post-retirement goal there is to hit all seven continents, and I'm just missing Antarctica. And okay. I'm talking travel for, like, for fun. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. and then I'd have to say, you know, friends. I enjoy my friends. You heard earlier how much I love my family. I also adore my friends, and it's important when you travel like we do, and I don't know what's going to happen with COVID. I think there's going to be some transformation on how even you serve your clients remotely, but that's a different discussion. But 
I think when you travel like we do, you have a job that requires travel. You have to make that extra effort to schedule dinners, concerts, mini vacations with your friends so mm-hmm. you can stay in touch with them. So, but, you know, kind of in, in, in summary, when it comes to, to balance and, you know, being philanthropic and doing fun things, um, I, I usually end any discussion, uh, or a keynote with two quotes from inspirational women that it's resonated to me throughout the years. And one is from Maya Angelou, where she said, I've learned that you shouldn't go through life with a catcher's mitt on both hmm. hands. You need to be able to throw something back that kind of combines you know, philanthropy with baseball. And okay. then, um, of course, lastly is a quote from Anne Frank, which is no one um, has ever become poor from giving. So I think if we can live by a couple of those, a couple of those key quotes, uh, when it comes to thinking about balance and, and just keeping active, uh, that's kind of what I've hopefully lived by. So. Yeah. Anyway, those are, <laughs> that's how I keep some, that's how I keep some balance. <laughs> those are beautiful quotes and, and great advice. That is fantastic. Well, thank you, Moshe. It's, it's just so enjoyable to have worked with the students and to have met you at Vanderbilt. Um, I knew immediately when we, when we met, I'm like, this is a, this is a great consultant and a wonderful student. And it uh, was certainly joyful to work with uh, the Vanderbilt students last year. Well, I'm blushing right now. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're too kind and flattered. You're very welcome, and it was lovely to meet Claudia as well. I like to meet the, I like to meet the spouses of our of our teammates and our colleagues. So, <laughs> best of continued success and best of luck to both of you. You're too kind. But I have a doozy of a of a question to kind of you know wrap hey, everything up. Yeah, it, it's it's a doozy. So if you could be any type of animal, what animal would you be? <laughs> what animal? What animal? Okay, not a reptile. Probably, I would probably say a deer. A deer, okay, that's interesting. I think, yeah, I think deers are, they just are, I think they're they're pretty and they're, they, they're graceful under pressure. They don't eat their young. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that as a criteria. That's <laughs> <laughs> a criteria. And I just think, I just think they're, they're pretty, both both male and female. I, growing up in Northwest Pennsylvania, this is kind of weird, but you know, I grew up like kind of hunting and fishing with my father and grand grandfather. And that might seem like a duality, right? But and I haven't hunted in years and years. I, I usually when I go up there, like if you hike or actually deer to my my parents have a really nice uh, home and backyard, and there's like fam- deer little deer families that you can see, especially during during oh, cool. the winter. So I just have an appreciation for for that animal, and I just think that I just think that they're really amazing. And I, like I said, they're very graceful under pressure, and they can jump really high. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good skill to have. Fences, yes, yes, they can jump really high. So anyway, but that's a cute. That was a cute question. Yeah. I had to really think about that. <laughs> so so lastly, if if our listeners, if they want to find out more about the important work that that Davis Aquila College is doing and that, that you're supporting, where, where could they, they find information and how could they get involved? Moshe, that's just such a great question and really appreciate the outreach. I've been honored to be part of the Davis Aquila College and was elected as their board chair in 2020. Um, our founder is Elizabeth Dearborn Hughes and Karen Sherman is our president. 
and they shepherd a very talented team of faculty and administration. So you can find they're very active on social media. So you can hmm. find them on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. If anyone has any questions, they can certainly reach out to me Great. as well. They, you know, they've developed this unique job-relevant education model that was founded uh, with this vision of creating this transformational education for women in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. We are celebrating our decennial this year and have seen some amazing, extraordinary success with over 2,000 alumni and students. And I know we've talked about that, Moshe. You worked on a project when we were together at Vanderbilt yeah, last I year. Yeah, sure did. And, yeah, and you did an excellent job, and they actually are implementing the recommendations of our, our teams that uh, consulted to them from Vanderbilt. Uh, we're ready to scale um, at Davis Aquila and have opened up uh, Davis Aquila College in Hong Kong uh, last year. And given COVID, however, we've made some very challenging decisions around the expansion and timing, yet are unwavering in the commitment to provide this job relevant education. So uh, your, your question about where to find more information, we are extremely active on in social media. So just reach out to Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook pages, um, and you can reach out to me as well. And I can make certain that there are connections made with the proper leaders at Davis Kila. That's great. And it's fantastic work. I would encourage anybody who's interested to to get involved and to find out more information because it's a just a really special organization. Thank you, Moshe. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Mary Kay, and thank you for joining us today. Well, there you go. You heard it right here from Dr. Mary Kay Vona herself, change leader extraordinaire. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to Dr. Vona for joining us today on our inaugural Change Leaders podcast series episode. It was very insightful and a lot of fun chatting with her. Once again, if you want to support Davis Keel College, go and follow them on Facebook or Instagram, or if you want more information, go to their website, aquilainstitute.org. It's a really great nonprofit, and they're doing a lot of impactful work. As for me, make sure you follow my Change Leaders podcast series and go ahead and connect with me on LinkedIn. I guess we will see you next month. Cheers. <laughs>